How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study of God's word this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the privilege we have to gather together as believers to study your word this evening, to be refreshed by the truth that is there, that it provides us with an understanding of who we are as human beings, our purpose, our function, and why you've created us. Father, it helps us to understand why you have redeemed us, and our purpose in redemption is to ultimately to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and to advance to spiritual maturity that we may have his character formed in us, and reflect that to the world around us. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would, or this evening, we pray you would help us to understand the things that we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and we continue our study of the sixth day of creation. This is a crucial verse, Genesis 1. Uh, verses 25 to 28 give us the reason or purpose that God created man and the purpose uh, for man being on the earth, his foundational purpose. Genesis chapter 1, starting verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image according to our Likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is called, this verse and verse 28, which is its mirror reflection, are called the dominion mandate. The dominion mandate. That is because it expresses the purpose of God for man is to exercise dominion over the creation uh, in God's place. Now let's review what we've seen so far in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we learn that the earth became, in the Hebrew it's tohu vabohu, it's translated without form and void. It's, uh, some might say unformed and unfilled, others might say, uh, in, uh, shapeless and empty. The terms together indicate a chaotic state that is the result of divine judgment on the planet. So there's a perfect pattern in these six days of activity. There's six days of activity, one day of rest, as we'll see tonight. And on day one, you have the creation of light. Everything is already dark. Darkness is the absence of light. There's the separation of light from darkness, and this begins a time cycle, a temporal cycle. So time begins, actually, 
for, from, from a geocentric perspective, what I mean is from an earth-centered perspective, time begins at this point because this is when the earth begins to rotate on its axis. This is when you have evening and morning, day one. So time from an earth perspective begins at this point. Day two, you have the creation of the atmosphere, the what's called the firmament, but it's actually the atmosphere which is placed between the waters, and it separates upper waters from lower waters. And then in day three, you have the formation of the seas and the dry land and the creation of vegetation. Day three has two elements of creation. First, the seas are collected into one place, the dry land appears, and then the second act is the appearance of vegetation. That deals with the aspect of the formation of the various spheres in which life is going to exist. Then on the other hand, you have the, the filling of those spheres, the correction of the problem of Bohu. On day four, the light bearers are created. The sun, moon, and stars are created and placed in the heavens. So light, which was created on day one, is now uh, isolated into light bearers. And day five... The atmosphere is filled with the creatures of the air. The waters are filled with the creatures of the water. And then on day six, the dry land is now filled with land creatures and mankind. So there are two creative activities on day six in reflection of the two creative activities on day three. So that gives us a perfect balance in the activities of the week. Now, when we ended last time, I had gone through an <clears throat> some study of verse 26 and what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. This is a crucial verse because it is this verse that helps us to understand the uniqueness of the human race. What sets mankind apart from all the other creatures is not simply his ability to reason, not his ability to communicate, but he, that he is in the image and the likeness of God. Uh, the term nefesh, which is a Hebrew word for soul, and here it's used in terms of living things, nefesh hayah. It is that word that is applied to both animals and to man. But it is the idea of being in the image and the likeness of God that sets man apart. And those terms are terribly crucial for understanding man's uh, purpose on the earth, God's plan and purposes for man. So let me review some of those points briefly. First of all, man is made in the image and according to the likeness of God. In the image, Betsalmenu, and according to the likeness, Kid Mutenu. And I pointed out last time that these verbs that we have in, in verse 25, or excuse me, in verse 26, these, these uh, excuse me, prepositional phrases start with two distinct prepositions. You have a ba at the beginning of the first one, which is transliterated with a B and then an uppercase E, and then a K, which is transliterated as a K with an uppercase E. It's a very short, uh, almost non-existent breathing mark. Uh, and these two words, the B indicates uh, actually as the image of God, and the K usually indicates something along the lines of according to. But they are used together to indicate a synonymous uh, parallelism between these two concepts. So man is made in the image of God and according to his likeness. 
Second point. Second point. The image describes man's function. Man is created actually as the image, as we'll see. That describes the function of man. The basic meaning, the basic meaning of Betzal Menu, as we see on the slide, is representative. We are created as God's representative. So we, the image describes man's function. We are to represent God. Man was originally created to represent God over all of the creatures. There, that is why you see in the, in the mandate of verse 28 that man is to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Literally, he is to rule the earth in God's place. This is his function. This is his purpose before the fall. So image describes man's function uh, according to the standard of God's immaterial essence. Then point three, likeness is what describes that immaterial essence or the sole makeup of man in terms of his self-conscious, in terms of his intellect, his volition, and his conscience. So likeness describes the immaterial makeup, the composition of the soul. Fourth point, we saw that these terms explain not merely that man is in the image of God, but that he is the image of God. This is called the bait essentiae, or the bait of essence. It's that little preposition I drew up here on the overhead a minute ago. This preposition, ba, has a number of different meanings. It can mean in, but here it has the idea of as, representing a comparison to, to uh, the idea of essence, the idea of essence. So this tells us that man is is the image of God. That is, man is the representative of God. That's the idea of image. Fifth point we saw was that man was thus created to fill the role as God's vicegerent. Now, a vicegerent is someone who rules in the place of someone else. Someone who rules in the place of someone else. Man is thus created to fulfill the role as God's vicegerent, his personal representative and ruler over creation, so that the rest of creation could look at man, could look at mankind, and in a sense they would see God. Man was to represent God. He was to be God's representative to both the creation underneath him as well as to the angels, because remember the angels are witnesses to what is going on on the planet because God is demonstrating certain things in relationship to the angelic conflict and to Satan's charges that God has not been fair to him. God has not given him the opportunity to rule the planet as he would like to. God has not given him the opportunity to demonstrate all that he is capable of doing. So God is going to run a little test case through this new creature called man. And through man, God is going to demonstrate that the creature cannot function independently of God. That anything he does, no matter how morally good it might be, if it is done in independence to God's will, it eventually will uh, produce destruction and chaos. So man is created in a role as God's vicegerent. Sixth, the image applies equally to male and female. Point six, man and woman together represent God on the earth. Man creates 
them a male and female as the image of God, verse 27. Seventh point, the believer being conformed to the image of Christ is to represent Christ as ambassador on the earth. The image of God is defaced and marred through the fall. It is starts to be recovered at regeneration when we are when we recover our human spirit and are born again and then we grow from grace to grace and from glory to glory as the image of Christ is made in us and that is a picture of the process of sanctification that is a picture of the process of sanctification as the believer as the character of Jesus Christ is made in the individual believer we looked at several passages Romans 8:29 that we are to become conformed we have been predestined to become conformed to the image of his son that is our destiny predestination doesn't have to do with the fact that god controls human volition predestination doesn't mean that god has determined every decision that everybody's going to make in human history predestination has to do with the concept of having a destiny determined ahead of time and the destiny or the goal that god has in mind for every believer is to uh, be transformed into the image of his son 1 Corinthians 15:49 Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. 2 Corinthians 3:18 But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. So we are being transformed into this image. Now if we go back, one more verse, Colossians 3.10, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So these seven points summarize what we have learned about the, about the work of Christ, I mean the work of God in creating man according to his image. But the function of man or the, or the reality of what he is is directly related to his function which is given in the verse as to rule and to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth now this relates to two distinct words that we find in verse 26 and let me put these up on the overhead for you the first word is the Hebrew word Radah, R-A-D-A-H, and the second word is the word Kabash, K-A-B-A-S-H. Now, Radah means to rule, to dominate, and to exercise Dominion. Kabash means to subdue, to bring everything under control, or to bring something into bondage. So these two words together indicate that man is to exercise 
complete authority over all of the animals, over all the fish of the sea, over all the birds of the sky, over all of the natural resources that God has given to man. Now, this is a unique point that is made here. I will come back and expand it as we get into the second chapter. But it lays the groundwork for a Christian view of the environment. It lays the groundwork for the Christian view of the environment. When you run up against <coughs> certain, the, the, let's call it the left-wing view of, of environmentalism, their view is that man just wants to rape and pillage and destroy the environment and, and um, everything that he does destroys the environment. So they want man to live in peaceful harmony with the environment and not develop any natural resources. And that's what you always see in paganism. And paganism, and you, you get this, this idea of uh, this idealized utopian view of, the, uh, of native man living in in perfect harmony with nature, and they'll talk about the uh, American Indian. They'll talk about Aborigines in Australia. They'll talk about uh, <coughs> African natives, how they lived in harmony with nature. But they polluted nature. You do any studies, serious studies, of the American, the Native American Indian, and they would live in one location. For example, I've done a lot of study with on the Comanches in Texas and the Apaches, and they would live in a particular area, and they did not understand a lot of the basics in relationship to, to sanitary conditions, and they would have their latrines off to the side of the village, and they would just live there until they... They trashed out the area, and then they would move on. They were migratory. And this was typical of, of, of many of the uh, Native American people. That's why they stressed the environment of, for example, the Texas Plains up in the Llano Estacado area and the State, the state Plains and up in the um, and what is now the Texas Panhandle. And they over, actually overpopulated the area. Just a few aborigines living in this kind of radical condition actually overpopulated all that territory because they didn't know how to use the natural resources for their benefit. And then when you get modern man coming along, a Western European influence with uh, a greater technology, they're able to utilize those natural resources. And now we have millions of people who live in that same area but they are able to live in harmony. Now, that doesn't mean that man hasn't polluted the environment to some degree or another. That's because man is a sinner. But the difference is that in, in, in most environmental rationale, they're basically operating on a pantheistic and pagan view of nature so that man is to live in harmony with nature because he's just another cog. The assumption is not any different from, is evolutionary. Uh, as I've demonstrated earlier, most of the pagan religions have the same kind of approach to origins that, that, uh, evolution has. And so their idea is that man just lives in harmony with nature. He doesn't do anything to disturb what's around him. He doesn't dig in the ground. He doesn't, uh, utilize the natural resources. Everything has to be kept in this sort of perfect balance. Uh, and, and man is just another piece in the overall machinery of nature. But in Christianity, man is distinct from the rest of the creation. Man is to rule over the creation. Man is to subdue the creation. Man is to exercise his engineering skills, his mental capabilities, his inventiveness in order to uh, 
uh, discover and develop the natural resources that God put into the planet so that he can build a civilization that glorifies God. Now, that's the view under the pristine condition prior to the fall of man. However, all of that gets warped because of sin. Nevertheless, God never rescinds the dominion mandate. It is restated. It is never going to be fulfilled, though, until Jesus Christ comes back and establishes a perfect government and perfect environment during the millennium. But Genesis 1, uh, 26 to 28, lays the foundation for how man is to rule and dominate the dominate nature. Animals, birds, fish are all to be governed and ruled by mankind in a responsible manner, sure not in a manner that that destroys the environment so that it can't be used again. In fact, you don't want to use the environment in the same way the Aborigines used the environment because they destroyed the natural environment, but there was so much of it they just picked up and moved on to the next campsite. So man is created to uh, exercise dominion and to rule over the planet. We see the expansion of this meaning of dominion and rule in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2.15, we're told after God, uh, Genesis chapter 2, by the way, gives a more precise look at the creative activity, activities of the sixth day. In verse 15 of Genesis 2, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. This is his responsibility. It is not an environment where he and uh, just laid around in the garden and enjoyed all of the wonders of paradise and ate all the all the fruit and food that he wanted to. He had responsibilities. What we will see is those responsibilities were not laborious. They were not burdensome. They were not difficult responsibilities. He enjoyed it. He was in perfect harmony with nature because there was no sin at that particular point. Genesis 2.19 Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. So this was another responsibility the man had, which was to observe the animal kingdom and to identify similarities and differences, to classify and categorize the animals, and to develop names or nomenclature for all of the various animals that would reflect their uh, essential nature, their essential character. So this was quite a task, and there were, some suggest, two or 3,000 different kinds. It could, of course, have been less because we're not exactly sure what the kind boundary was in the original creation. It's much broader than our concept of species. Genesis 2.20, the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So God is accomplishing several things by having Adam name the animals. This is the beginning of the exercise of rule and dominion. He categorizes and classifies the animals. He's beginning to learn about his environment. He is beginning to recognize that there are different kinds of animals and that they have different uh, sizes and different uh, abilities, and some of them can be used for different things in carrying out the task of uh, doing the work in the garden. But ultimately, he is discovering that each animal was a 
had a pair. There was a male and a female, but there was no counterpart to Adam. There was no helper suitable for him. So Genesis 2 then describes the mechanics of God's work on the sixth day and the creation of man, uh, mankind in the garden. He had work to perform. He was to cultivate the garden. Actually, that word is the Hebrew word avad, which means to work. So you have the word cultivate. You have the word cultivate, <coughs> which is the Hebrew Abad, A-B-A-D-H, which means to work. And he is secondly to uh, <coughs> keep the garden, which is the Hebrew word shamar, S-H-A-M-A-R, which has the idea of guarding, watching, or keeping. Now, why would he have to guard and watch over the gar- garden? Because in the background, although we haven't been introduced to Lucifer yet, Lucifer, or Satan now, is lurking, and so man's responsibility is to guard the creation from the introduction of evil. And then we know that he was to name the animals, and in the ancient world, naming is a function of exercising dominion or control. We saw that in our study of Daniel. Remember Daniel chapter 1, when the young men are taken as captives back to Babylon? What's the first thing that Nebuchadnezzar does? He gives them a new name. That is showing that he is now the one in control. So in the ancient world, uh, naming it shows control and dominion. So now we have this divine mandate that they are to rule and exercise dominion over over the earth. Now I want you to pay particular attention to verse 28. Verse 28. After God creates man in his image, then God blessed them, and the blessing is given in the quotation. The blessing isn't something secondary. He doesn't say, well, bless you, my child. The blessing is defined by the dominion mandate itself. This gives man a purpose and a function. And I notice what we have here. This is very important to understand man's purpose. Be fruitful and multiply. And I want you to notice that in some Bibles it says, Be fruitful and multiply, colon. This is what you have in the New King James. Then fill the earth and subdue it, semicolon. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That is not what the original Hebrew says. It's not broken by semicolons. These are not uh, three different commands here. This is, this is one command with five elements. This is a compound verb. If you were to take a, if you were diagramming this in a sentence, you would have five equal imperatives. You can't come in and chop these up and say, well, there's one command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and there's, there's another command to subdue it and rule it. The way it is set up in the Hebrew is you have five verbs all linked together with the, with the vav, conjunctive, Vav prefix, which indicates that all five are viewed equally. 
The W is pronounced like a V in German. At least that's the way I was taught to pronounce it. You have five verbs, each linked equally. So you can't remove one without removing the other four. These are linked together grammatically and syntactically so that it is a five-fold mandate. They all go together. You can't come along and uh, subdivide the command. The first command is to be fruitful. This is the cal imperative of the Hebrew word para, which means to produce uh, offspring. It is a word that is also used of, uh, of the animals back uh, back in verse 22, the animals, uh, the sea creatures were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters. The second word is multiply. It's a cal imperative plus a vav consecutive of ravah, which means to grow. It has the idea of not simply having offspring, but having many offspring. And then the ultimate purpose, see there's sort of an ascending order here, is to fill the earth. And again, that is a cal imperative of malah, which means that they are not to stop until the whole earth is brought under dominion. Now, some people would say, well, that's a horrible thing. You know, we're overpopulated today. Uh, we have too many people living on the planet. Look at all of the cities. Look at what's happening in Asia. But apparently... A recent study indicated that you could take every human being living on the planet and give give them uh, a couple of acres of land, and they wouldn't fill the state of Texas. Of course, that tells you something about how big Texas is. But the earth is not overpopulated. There are enormous areas on this planet that are, of course, some, some areas are not very livable, but perhaps technology could resolve that, just as in the illustration I used earlier, the uh, Comanches overpopulated the staked plains of Texas, but when Western Europeans came in, they didn't overpopulate, even though they had millions more because of technology. So technology can make a tremendous difference. Uh, we, the Dominion mandate here has not been has not been reversed after the Noahic flood in Genesis chapter 9 as part of the Noahic covenant God restates this part of it that man is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth because you see in God's plan and purpose having children is a function of being an image bearer and the psalmist says that blessed is the man whose quiver is filled with them. And the metaphor that he uses is that of a, of a warrior who has a quiver filled with arrows, and he sends those arrows out into battle to gain victory over the enemy. And so the picture that we have from the Old Testament is that people were to have children. They were viewed as a blessing from God, and they were, according to Malachi chapter 3, to raise godly offspring... And the purpose was to influence the world through missionary activity through your godly offspring. And this concept is not reversed in the New Testament. The Christian family raises children, has children, in order to uh, send them out as missionaries for divine viewpoint and Bible doctrine into the world, just as a warrior sends his arrows into the enemy in order to gain victory over them. And some Christians have an idea that, uh, well, we shouldn't have too many children or we won't have children. And, and many people in this country have been negative inf negatively influenced by a lot of the propaganda that's put forth by the overpopulation uh, people 
They've been negatively influenced by their own selfishness and their own desire to have two or three cars and certain kinds of cars and live in a certain kind of house rather than to produce godly offspring, children who are believers, and raising them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And this is a basic function of divine institution number three, the family. And so children are always viewed in the Scripture as a blessing, and anyone who views children as less than a blessing is operating on human viewpoint uh, thinking and not on biblical uh, thinking or on Bible doctrine. So the first three commands relate to the idea of filling and expanding influence over the planet. And then the the next two commands relate to their function in ruling over everything. They are to subdue uh, the planet. This is the Cal imperative of Kabash. They are to bring it under, under control. They are to dominate it. This is the idea of the second verb, uh, rada, the cal imperative. So these are five imperative verbs. That's why it's called the, the dominion mandate, to fill the earth and to subdue and rule over the earth. Now, a question has arisen on this passage uh, in light of the fact that God is creating them male and female and putting them in the garden. The question has arisen, could the woman have conceived and born children in the garden. And could the woman have conceived and born children in the garden? Is it possible that Adam and Eve could have Eve could have gotten pregnant, had children in the garden, and had those children married and had more children all developing in in perfect environment? Well, let's look at the possibilities. There are only only uh, <coughs> uh, three options. The first option is that the woman was incapable of bearing children, and therefore this mandate was designed to be fulfilled only after the fall. This first option that suggests is that the woman was really incapable of bearing children until after the fall. This mandate is sort of what is the technical term is proleptic. It's given early, but it's not meant to be fulfilled until later. In other words, God told them to do something, but it really wasn't to go into effect until after the fall. That's the first option. The first option, the second option is that the woman was fully capable of bearing a child before the fall, but she did not, either because A, she didn't have enough time. That's your second option. She could get pregnant, but she didn't have enough time. They fell too quickly. They sinned too soon. They only were there for a few days. See, there's nothing anywhere in the Scripture that indicates a time frame other than in Genesis 5, we know that Adam was 90 years old when Cain uh, was born. That means that they weren't in the garden any longer than 90 years, or let's say 89 years. That's your parameter. Now, somebody said, oh, well, that countdown didn't start till the fall. That's the stupidest answer I ever heard. See, if you had, if they were in the fall, let's say they were in the garden for three years, and you ask Adam, how old are you? He said, well, God created me three years ago. See, he's been, he's been, just because he's not aging doesn't mean time hasn't gone by. More, you know, evening and morning indicate that there's a time frame going on, and that the sun and the moon and the stars were placed in heaven for this, for the signs and for years. So time was measured just because he was in an unfallen state in perfect environment 
it doesn't mean years weren't going by. So, but so you see, people you come come at that because they want to somehow cram, cram, and jam millions of years into all this. Oh well, Adam and the woman were in the garden for they could have been in there for millions of years. Well, they could have, but they could have only been in there for thirty seconds too. So let's not get too carried away with this. You know, when there's no time, no time indication. There's no time indication other than the ninety years given in Genesis chapter five. So the first option is the woman couldn't bear bear any children, and God did not intend for this mandate to be fulfilled until after the fall. Second, the option is she's capable of bearing children, but she didn't because they weren't there long enough for her to get pregnant. And the third option is that she could get pregnant, but God sovereignly overruled. God sovereignly overruled until their faith was tested. God, and God does that many times in our lives where he may, he may have a general mandate to the believer to uh, be generous with what God has given him in support of the local church financially, and yet maybe you're unemployed and you don't have any resources to support the local church. You know, the mandate is still for you, and it's still real and valid, but God in his sovereignty just doesn't make it possible for you to fulfill the mandate at a particular moment in time. So the, we have to evaluate these three options now, and there are several problems with, each, with, the, uh, with the first one especially. Remember, the first option was that the woman is incapable of bearing children, and the, the mandate was designed to be fulfilled only after the fall. The first problem with this is that this would mean that the command, as it is initially given, was empty and meaningless. God creates Adam and the woman, puts them there, and says, "Now be fruitful and multiply." And they're looking at each other like, "Well, you know, well, we can't do that." So it had no meaning. Uh, God would be commanding them to do something which had no meaning and no possibility of fulfillment before the fall. As part of this, this creates serious problems for interpretation of the scriptures, what we call hermeneutics, because there are several times where this, these commands are given. It's given one other time before the fall to the animals. If it had no meaning for the man, then it would have no meaning for the, for the animals. It was not to be fulfilled at all until after the fall. You can't say, oh, well, it was only, only for man, uh, it was different because the grammar, the words, and the syntax are identical. There's nothing in the context to indicate that these commands should be understood any differently. Second, you have the same command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth given to Noah after the flood and similar commands given to Abraham in terms of filling the land of Canaan with the offspring, with his offspring. And if the other commands are to be understood as being effective immediately, then this command should be understood as being effective immediately. So one problem just has to do with interpretation, and it would basically uh, renders the verse uh, meaningless and impotent. The second problem that you have with the first view is that since all five imperatives are grammatically linked together, you can't come in and say, well, these two, the last two, rule and exercise dominion, those two are before the fall, and the first three are supposed to be later on at some undesignated time, and, of course, they don't know they're going to sin. So since all five imperatives are grammatically linked, they either all have to be effective from the instant they're given, or none of them are applicable before the fall. 
And if they're not applicable before the fall, then man has nothing to do before the fall. The whole concept of his purpose in Genesis 1.28 is to explain what he is to do as the image of God and as the creature in the image and likeness of God. After the fall, God has to come in and modify this because now man is a sinner and he's going to be incapable of truly fulfilling the dominion mandate. The third problem that that has is it makes makes uh, being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth a consequence of sin. She can't get pregnant at all until after the after the fall because God really doesn't make that part of her makeup until the curse, and that means that children are a consequence of sin, and that goes counter to everything else in Scripture. Now there may be times when you think your children are the consequences of sin, and there may be times when you're on an airplane like we were the other day when you're surrounded by seven infants and toddlers, and you think that children are a curse of God. But other than that, the Scriptures teach that they are actually a blessing, and they are not a consequence of sin. And then fourth, uh, I mean, in conclusion, I think that, that either she didn't have enough time, they weren't really in the garden that long, or God just simply sovereignly overruled to prevent her from being pregnant. Now, some people have said, well, Oh, she couldn't get pregnant because, you know, she, that would mean that she would have a, a monthly cycle in paradise. But, uh, that's not true as we'll, dem- as I've demonstrated before. There are biological changes that go, th- that reverberate throughout the entire animal kingdom. Animals change. The, the lions and the leopards become car- car- carnivores. Their, their gastrointestinal system shifts. So there is a physical, biological change in the woman's reproductive system because of the fall. But that does not mean that it did not exist in another way prior to the fall. So, uh, furthermore, uh, so, in conclusion, then, she was capable of being pregnant, but God sovereignly overruled that, that capacity. Now, verse 29. God says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. He is addressing the man. He says, I have given you the man. Every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. Notice he is to eat vegetation. He is not to eat meat. That did not come until uh, he was not authorized to eat meat until after the flood. God says unto every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. Now, that makes it clear that when he says every green plant for food, he doesn't mean that every plant was edible. What he's saying is that every plant provides some sort of, of nutrition for some kind of creature, and that there is more than an abundance of food for mankind. Then verse 31, And God saw that all he had made, <clears throat> behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So let's make some observations in relationship to verses 29 to 31. First observation. This means that trees with fruit, grasses, various grasses and shrubs that provided nourishment for animals, were mature plants. Now that doesn't mean that every plant that God created was mature, but there were many that were mature and fully able from the day they were created 
to supply the complete nutrition uh, necessary for the animals. From day one, God's created mature fruit trees. This means that five hours after Adam and the woman were created, they could reach out and pluck a ripe pear from a tree or a ripe banana, and some of the berries in the garden were already ripe. They, Though they were only three days old, they were created on the third day, they had the appearance of being much, much older. The mature fruit, pre, fruit trees that were producing fruit appeared as if they had themselves grown from a seed, and they were several years old. I mean, if you were just plopped down right there 15 seconds after Adam was created, you looked around, you would think those trees had been there for years. Obviously, I mean, that fruit fruit had been there for at least eight or nine months because now it's it's uh, it's ripe. Some fruit takes longer than others to ripe, but all the fruit was, or some of the fruit was already ripe and ready to be eaten. The second observation we have is that every animal, included and mankind, every animal and mankind were originally designed to be herbivores. They were gramnivorous. They were not carnivores. That means they had a certain kind of digestive system, a certain kind of dental structure. All of those things were related to their eating. This condition, we're told, will be restored in the millennial kingdom. For example, in Isaiah 11, 6 through 8, we read, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put its hand in the viper's den. In other words, there's not going to be this antagonism in the animal kingdom, and verse 7 indicates the lion is going to eat straw. He will be a herbivore again. So this is will be... Uh, their their gastrointestinal system and everything will revert, so there will be a change again in the uh, biological structure in the animal kingdom. Fourth observation is that these verses, verses 29 to 30, speak of God's abounding and sufficient grace for his creatures. When God provides something to meet the requirement of man, whether a physical requirement or a spiritual requirement, it is sufficient. That's the key word. It is sufficient. God's grace is always sufficient. Sufficient means that it is as much as needed. It is not necessarily more than is necessary, but that God provides abundantly and generously so that man does not need to add to what God supplies. So sufficiency applies to God's provision for man in the garden. He had all the food he needed to eat. He might not have had a cordon bleu chef there that could produce every kind of food that we could think of, but he had all that was required to provide all the nutrition that was necessary to sustain his life physically on the planet. Sufficiency also applies to God's provision for salvation. Christ paid it all. He paid for every single sin in human history, past, present, and future. There was nothing left unpaid for. So many people get the idea that there are certain sins that if you commit them, you weren't really saved. Well, what they're saying is Christ didn't pay for that sin. 
and yet Christ's death is sufficient. He paid for every sin. There's no sin that you can think of that is too great for the grace of God and too great for the plan of God. And then the word sufficient also applies to God's revelation. Now, sufficient means that God provided everything man needed, not everything that could possibly be thought of. So, for example, point number four, in the garden, God gave enough to take care of man's nutritional needs, not every kind of food that could be thought of. Point number five, in the same way, God provided adequate information for Adam and Isha, such that it was uh, not necessary for them to know all they could know. See, when God gives them the necessary information, he's not going to answer all their questions. That's why he came and spent time in the garden every day. He was answering some of their questions. They're exploring creation. They're learning. They're growing. Their knowledge is increasing. God may not have even told them, and it's not likely that he did, about the angelic conflict about Satan or Lucifer, because that's part of the test. God doesn't give them that information, but he does give them all they need to know, which is, see that tree? Don't eat it. You can eat from the fruit of every other tree in the garden, but you can't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because in the day you eat from it, you'll die. God did not have to come along and say, explain the mechanics. He did not have to come along and tell them what had happened in eternity past with the fall of Lucifer. We're not told that he communicated any of that, but he gave them enough information to keep them out of trouble. They just decided they knew more than he did. So, And then the sixth observation is that every green plant is given for food, indicating that there were no plants that were inedible uh, for some species. That is, that, that everything was good. There's no poisonous plants. None of that is introduced into the environment until after the fall. And then the final statement that is made in verse 31 <coughs> is that God looked at everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And that term now we find for the, actually the sixth time, five other times God has seen what he, what he created and said that it was good. Now he says it's very good. And this indicates that the creation in its totality was complete. All of the details fit together in perfect harmony. All of the interdependent systems were fully functioning. And the whole of the earth was exactly as God intended according to his blueprint. It's the idea of an architect who has designed a fantastic structure and when every detail is completed and he goes through and makes his final inspection with all of his blueprints and all of his uh, schematics, he stops and he says, everything is perfect. It's exactly as it was intended to be. The, God's uh, terminology there that it was good is not a statement about morality. He is not saying that everything is morally good because many of those things don't have moral anything moral attached to them. Birds are neither moral nor immoral. Animals are neither moral nor immoral. They are only what God intended them and created them to be. So that finishes the sixth day, and then we come to the, the seventh day, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts, in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 1. 
The word for host there is Sabaoth, which in other places refers to the armies of the angels, but here it doesn't have an angelic term. It often refers to the hosts of heaven in the sense of the sun, the moon, and the stars. So this is a summary statement in verse 1, that the heavens and the earth, that is the universe, is now completed in its restoration and every every part of it. And then we have verses 2 and 3, which tell us the purpose of the seventh day. And by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Verse 2 makes it clear that God finished on the seventh day. Now, we want to read this and say, no, he actually finished on the sixth day because he doesn't do any work on the seventh day, right? So people often want to say, well, it was a six-day creation week, and then he rested on one day. Uh, In fact, some ancient manuscripts actually read this way. They tried to straighten out the Holy Spirit. Uh, The uh, Samaritan Pentateuch, the Septuagint, the uh, Peshitta, and the Book of Jubilees all read sixth day, but the correct reading is on the seventh day because of the way it's structured in the Hebrew. It's set up like poetry, and there is a perfect balance and parallelism in the lines. Each th- This verse consists of three cons- consecutive parallel lines in the, in the Hebrew. Each of those lines, three lines, each line contains exactly seven words and is divided into two parts, and the last word in each line is seventh. So that tells us that you can't substitute sixth in there anywhere. Every one, every line fits perfectly in a harmonious whole, uh, indicating through tremendous uh, literary skill the completion of the work. So the seventh day, the day of rest, is part of the whole. That means that resting from labor, that's the principle here, Resting from labor is as much a part of life as fulfilling responsibilities. See, this this is what gets the workaholic. See, the workaholic wants to work seven days a week, uh, six, and uh, <clears throat> never stop his rest, never stop to rest. But the principle is that man is designed to need rest and to recharge his batteries. And even though it's, this isn't a legalistic mandate, there's a general principle that people need to take time off. They need to have time for uh, recreation and procreation, and they need to relax and enjoy life a little bit and not work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And when you do that, eventually system starts to break down. Uh, you can become physically ill. You can lose your mental perspective on life and start making mountains out of molehills and have all kinds of other problems. So God sets aside the seventh day as a day not of rest because God neither wearies nor needs rest. God simply ceases from his work, and that's the pattern, and it sets up the pattern for the Sabbath that will be established under the Mosaic Law for Israel. The Sabbath was never established for anyone else. Now, the other thing I want to note here is in these two verses, you also have a repetition of the phrase, his work. Three times that's repeated, and the emphasis is that God completed his work. It is his work. It's it's not by chance. It didn't happen through uh, time plus chance, through impersonal uh, forces in nature. 
God is intimately and directly involved in every aspect of the creation. So that God rested, he ceased from his labor. He doesn't rest because he's not weary, but he ceases from his labor during that last day. Then the next time we read of the Sabbath is in Exodus. Exodus 23:12. we read, Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor in order that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female slave as well as your stranger may refresh themselves. In other words, not just man but also animals. This shows responsible care for, for, for labor. Uh, both animal labor as well as human labor, to give them time off, opportunity to rest, and to recuperate. Exodus 34:21 reiterates this principle. You shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during plowing time and harvest you shall rest. And the point there is that that even when there are things that are pressing, it's still important to recognize the sabbatical principle of rest of setting aside your daily activity, no matter how pressing and important it may be, to take that time to pull back, to rest, to give your mind an opportunity to focus on something else so that you can come back refreshed and renewed to your day-to-day labor. Now, with Genesis 2-3, we complete the study of the first section of Genesis. The first section goes from 1-1 to 2-3, and what we have done, what I have tried to do here, is go through and show what the Bible teaches about creation. Now, next time, we're going to take the conclusions from the text, and we're going to start applying these specifically to different areas of the evolutionary debate, and we will spend the next three classes looking at those specifics and, and going back into the Scripture and doing some comparison and contrast there and evaluating claims that are made from an evolutionary perspective today. Everything from looking at at dating systems, how old is the earth, what about carbon-14, potassium, argon, radiometric dating, all these other systems. We're going to look at the basic claims of, uh, of evolution as it stacks up against basic laws of physics. And we're going to compare this back to see exactly what the scriptures uh, teach in these particular areas. So we will start that up next time. As I said at the beginning, we're going to constantly go from summary sections in Genesis to detail studies to topical studies and then back to, to the text. So we're going to work basically accomplishing several different objectives as we make our way through Genesis with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We pray that you would help us to understand these things and to apply them in our own lives, that under the God, the Holy Spirit, he would, he would make these things clear to us. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.